Good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are, depending on where you are watching this. My name is Rick Martinez, and I'm glad to be with you today. And I'd like for you to open your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Esther. To the book of Esther. Let's see how well you guys know your Bibles. If you can find Esther, how long it takes you to find Esther. When Matt asked me to teach today, I I started to pray about what um, I sensed the Lord might want to say to the church, and I had this sense of teaching out of Esther, and at first it was like, I'm not sure why. I felt like, Lord, why why of all books would you want me to to read that, study that, preach out of that? And of course, as I sat down, I read it through again. If you've not read the book before, maybe it's been a while, read it again. Uh, maybe today, tomorrow, whenever you can. Uh, it reads like a short story. It's, it's not a long book. It's 10 chapters. It's easy to read. It's quick reading. And it's actually, it's, it's an exciting book. But I felt like the Lord wanted me to read it and to study it, to speak to us today because of the, the need for us to re- recognize and realize that God is at work even when we don't sense God at work, even when we don't feel God, even when we don't see God. I was um, reading this morning early that uh, a number of states are going to be opening up, I guess, next week. Um, Idaho is going to be able to worship again, gather together to worship Uh, Texas, Missouri, South Carolina um, are all going to begin opening up to some degree, as we know Georgia did. And we are here in California, and we don't have any clarity as to what we're going to be able to do at any time coming up. So we're living in the midst of some uncertainty right now here in California. And we all know family, friends who are going through experiencing difficult time in this season um, believers and non-believers alike who are financially being you know, pressed, some whose businesses are suffering severely, possibly even um, having to face the, uh, the, the potential of closing them. And so in the midst of this time, the question is always, this is the question, where is God in this? And that's been probably the question that's been asked throughout history, maybe more than any other question by men. Where is God in this? And I want to say to us today that God is right in the middle of this, that God's hand is all over this if we dare to look. I'd like to begin by reading in in, uh, Esther. I want to just read the first few verses of Esther just to kind of get a context. Uh, in, In Ezra chapter one, beginning in verse one, It says this. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. 
And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Father, in the name of Jesus today, I just pray that the words that we look at today in, these, in the scriptures will speak to our hearts and minds, that Lord, we will, we will hear your voice above all. That we will know, O oh God, what it is you're saying today to us in our 21st century context in the world in which we live. And we thank you for the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are living in a time in, in Christ, our 21st century Christian experience when we often equate God's faithfulness with his obvious, clear, and visible expressions of his working on our behalf. Healings, powerful salvations, huge gatherings, uh, worship goosebumps are all faith builders many times for us. And those are good things. They are good things. But in fact, often we equate God's blessing with those types of visible expressions of grace. And then when they're absent, at times we question our Christian experience. But even more challenging than that are prolonged trials of difficulty, sickness, turmoil. And sadly, I've seen too many times in times like that, people will actually turn from the Lord, turn from God, doubting his love and doubting his faithfulness. And sadly, this is becoming more and more common in our time because we live in a consumer-driven entitlement culture and that has even crept into the church and so even in my own life I've said Lord at times I found myself sensing I'm entitled I deserve or God you should do this for me and I'm telling you today that is not in any way shape or form biblical and consistent with the heart of God so this book of Esther challenges really really directly that mentality and it calls us to ground ourselves in the God who is unchanging, who is always faithful, the sovereign Lord of all, who is also intimately involved in the details of my life and your life. This story, probably along with the book of Genesis, these two books show forth the beauty of God's providential love for his covenant people more clearly than maybe any other books in the Bible, Genesis and Esther. But I want to begin by defining a word that I'm going to be using throughout the teaching today, and that's the word providence. Let's define it, especially understanding how it differs from God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is the right and power to do all that he decides to do. It is the absolute authority of the king 
in and over his kingdom. Regarding this authority, Isaiah writes in chapter 66, verse 1, the Lord speaking says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. In fact, when the Queen of England is referred to oftentimes, she's simply called the sovereign. And they refer to her, her authority as the throne. Those words are used interchangeably to describe the authority of, of the queen or of a king over a kingdom. God's providence, however, is different from God's sovereignty. And it's, it's nuanced in its difference. It comes from a Latin word which means to foresee or to see toward. And what it implies is the active involvement of God to see that his will and his plan come to pass. So if you could use this analogy, if God's sovereignty is his rule over all, as being seated on a throne and overseeing a kingdom, his providence would be if he stepped off of the throne to become intimately involved in the details of those whom he loves and those who love him to bring about his purposes in their lives and in the world. The story of Esther is also filled with <clears throat> a lot of lessons for us as God's people. I'm obviously not going to go through the whole book today. I want to hit what I feel are, the, are the, the key thoughts regarding this. And I've entitled the teaching today, The Unseen Hand of God. Because that is the message of the book of Esther, is that God's hand, though unseen, is actively involved in the lives of his people. This story touches the very essence, and this is important to hear this right now. This story touches the very essence of the battle that we face throughout our Christian journey in this world. And it is the these are the, probably the two temptations, the twin temptations that we're, we're being dealt with by the, the people in the book of Esther as well. The two temptations are these. Now think about it. The twin temptations that we struggle with probably continually and we find them in this book of Esther are the temptation to either assimilate into the culture or to despair. These two primary temptations the Jews faced in Esther's day. On the one hand, they were living in the midst of a pagan empire that was intensely visible and very tangible. There was opulent wealth. Think of the book of Daniel and the story of Daniel in Babylon and under Nebuchadnezzar. Persia, which was where this story takes place in Esther, was not different. It was very similar to that. Maybe even more extreme because of its its vast size and greatness. A very, very visible, tangible empire, pagan empire that these people lived in. Opulent wealth. An absolute control of their lives. We saw in chapter one where the king even gives an edict telling them that they don't have to drink in the, in the, in the, in the party. To the degree, they, they control their lives to that degree. I know all of us are ruffling a little bit under the feathers right now of, of having our sense of freedom being taken from us. Sand parks, uh, uh, skate parks being filled with sand. You know, yesterday I saw they actually arrested a guy surfing in Southern California on a beach. You know, it's like when I see that, something in me rises up. It's not always good. 
But they lived under that continually in that culture. Every single thing dictated to them in this pagan environment. They probably smelled incense continually as hundreds of state-sponsored pagan temples were all around them. And then there was the, the, the great intimidation of, a, of a, a, a military army that was unsurpassed. And so they probably were tempted to think, is it even important for me to remain distinctive? Does it, will it really make any difference Think about this. Will it really make any difference for me to remain distinctive? Isn't it fruitless to think that that would matter and maybe even dangerous? On the other hand, the result of losing distinctiveness in the face of ongoing and the, uh, the un- unending onslaught of an ungodly culture, the, 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 the result of losing it often can lead to despair. When nothing, listen, when nothing appears to change, when life becomes routine, Groundhog Day, when faith in God isn't accompanied with any sense of benefit, when faith in God is not accompanied with any sense of benefit, when God is silent, and when the enemy is not silent, but in fact raging, and when our hearts feel like they're even maybe growing cold, Despair can be the natural consequence of even the strongest believer to even the strongest believer. But I want to say to us today, there's a third option. And this is the lesson of the story. When we find ourselves facing these two powerful enemies of our hearts, this is when the purpose of the book, the purpose of Esther should echo in our hearts. And this is the message. Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46. And I want to say to us today that God is at work. This is the message of this book. God is at work. Let your heart be strengthened today. God is at work even though I cannot see his hand. Even though I cannot sense his nearness. Even though it looks like nothing is happening or changing around me. And even though it appears that the enemy is closing in and gaining the upper hand. In God's unseen hand, behind the scenes being at work, both in and for my life and in the world, his purposes are, in fact, being accomplished. Now, I would say on the one hand, most of us would say, yeah, I know that. Isn't that kind of a given? And I would, I think, yeah, we probably all would say we know that. But what I do believe, if we're being honest with our own hearts, is that we don't always believe that. We do, we do at times succumb to one of those two very, very common temptations to either assimilate our lives, let them just blend into the life, to the world around us, because nothing will matter. It doesn't seem it won't change a darn thing if I don't, if I, if I don't remain distinctive. Or in fact, I'm just going to give in and, and just say, what the, I'm just giving it up. It's not worth it. I think it's interesting also in the book of Esther that God shows us that he is often at work in the world. Now think of this, in a a very entirely different mode than we see in other examples of biblical stories throughout the Bible. For example, classically, in the story of the book of Exodus. In Exodus, God's work is all thunder and lightning, full of dramatic interventions, miraculous power that exposes the, the lie and the emptiness of the Egyptian gods. 
There are great heroes in the book of Exodus like Moses and Aaron who are leading the people of God through. And there's just a trail of miracles attesting to God's presence with them. In the book of Esther, however, we don't see any of that. There are no heroes. Contrary to popular belief, Esther was a reluctant heroine. She was not a woman of great faith. She's not found in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith. And if you've read the Bible, this book, you know, and you've probably maybe heard it said before, the, the name of God is not mentioned one time in the book of Esther. Amazing. Not in a prayer, not in a conversation, not being alluded to by the author. There is no mention of God not one time in the book of Esther. And as you watch the story develop, you would wonder, why would they not have cried out to God and called upon his name? Although there is a record we're going to see of them fasting, there still is no record of them calling upon the name of the Lord. So there's nothing that is obvious of God's work. Just to give a very brief context for the story, again, if you've not read it, it takes place in Susa, as we saw when we read chapter one, which was the capital of Persia, and it takes place in the third year of the reign of a king named Ahasuerus, who was also known as Xerxes, who ruled from 486 to 465 BC before Christ. So it takes place about 53 years after the Babylonian exile had ended. The story of Daniel. And the Jews had been allowed to return to Jerusalem. But we know that not all of them did return. Many of them stayed in Babylon. And then when Babylon was taken over by Cyrus and the Persians, those who remained in Babylon and did not return to uh, Jerusalem, then many of them went to live in Persia under the rule of then, who, is, who has now become Ahasuerus or Xerxes. Two cousins, a man named Mordecai, and his younger female cousin, Esther, were two whose family had not returned to Jerusalem. So these two people were probably born either in Babylon or uh, they were young enough they had to have been born in Persia. And they now lived in Susa. Mordecai raised Esther as his own daughter, though they were cousins, because she was an orphan. They were raised Jews raised in the Jewish faith in a pagan country, but they were nominal, it seems, in their faith. For certain, Esther appears to have been nominal in her faith, not a strong faith, not a clear uh, declaration of her faith. Now, Ahasuerus was king, a king with great power and might. We saw in verse one or two of this first chapter that he ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And he knew how to throw a party. Chapter 1 says he threw a party for his military leaders, his princes, his nobles, all the power brokers of the kingdom, and it was a party that lasted six months. Now, our response to that is probably two things. On one hand, we're impressed. We're impressed, and on the other hand, we're disgusted. 
It's kind of like when we watch or we read about the Hollywood stars and, the, and, the, and the, the, the very wealthy of our time. On the one hand, when you see their lifestyle, the lifestyle of the rich and famous, you're, you watch the show and you are, in fact, impressed. But on the other hand, we are disgusted by their opulence, by their arrogance, by, by how they choose to live, by the waste that they have in their, in their lifestyle. Just to get an idea of the arrogance, as I said, in the pride of Ahasuerus, he actually made a, dic- a, a decree telling them that they didn't have to drink if they didn't want to. This is an edict of, of huge arrogance of power and authority that he operated by on a continual basis. But following that six-month party, and this is now the, just a brief overview of what the context of the story is, after the six-month party, listen to this, ends, Ahasuerus throws an after party as though the six months wasn't good enough. But this time, he includes everybody in the city to a week-long party. Let's read uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. On the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, this is during his after party, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. Sounds like WWE wrestlers. The seven eunuchs, they must have been big eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Now, we have really no idea how serious this act was by Vashti for many reasons. She embarrassed the king, but more than that, she sets a bad precedent in the city for all of the other women, the other wives. And the the, the advisors of the king are upset and concerned that their wives think they're going to be able to respond to them that that way as well. So the king is advised by his advisors to ban Vashti from his presence for life as a warning to the other wives in the city. And they encourage the king to find a new, young, beautiful wife, a beautiful queen, who will bid, do his bidding in his pleasure. And this is where Esther comes into the picture. She's not portrayed as being devout. There is no record of her showing that she was devout. And in fact, she allows herself to be groomed for the king's pleasure for a full year. And then after the year, with, along with a number of other young virgins who had been brought from wherever they could have been found, beauty from where, and whoever they were, wherever they were found throughout the empire, were brought, groomed, and then one at a time were brought to the king to actually have a tryout with the king to see whether or not they would measure up to his standards. We know that initially... Esther does not reveal her identity as a Jew. We don't know why. Was it out of shame? Was it out of fear? We don't know. In fact, some commentators actually see Esther as being an ungodly heroine 
who compromises completely her faith because of what she did and gave herself to. You have to see the contrast in the scriptures between Esther and Daniel. And in fact, in the Jewish scriptures, the book of Esther follows the book of Daniel in terms of sequence, and it probably would have been a good thing in our Bibles as well if it had been laid out that way. Because the contrast, I think, is purposeful from God. Daniel refused to bow to the king. Esther gave herself to the king. Daniel refused the lifestyle of Babylon, refused to eat the food being given to him. Esther willingly gave herself to be preened through diet and cosmetics in order to be more appealing to the king. So at this point, Esther was a perfectly compliant child of the empire, and her compliance had given her favor now with the king and with all who surrounded the king. And so we know, obviously, the story says that she becomes queen, and the king throws a great feast in her honor. Now, what we need to see, even as it begins, is that in spite of her compromise and her nominal faith, God is actively involved in the event of Esther's lives, in the events of her life. Maybe in spite of, or perhaps causing her reticence to reveal her true identity to the king. There is also a contrast, and I think there's a slide that we'll put up. I want you to see this, because this is important. There's a contrast in this book between two kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And it is a striking contrast throughout the book. One kingdom is filled with the glorification of man and his ideal. The other kingdom, self-sacrifice. One king can only be approached without knowing whether or not you will be approved to be in his presence upon penalty of death. In fact, death merely at his whim. The other king we are told to come boldly before, before his throne of grace, in spite of our unworthiness, because we are clothed in another's righteousness. The bride of one kingdom is subject to the desires of a fickle king. The bride of the other is greatly loved by her bridegroom, even unto death. The kingdom of man is opulent but empty and never secure. The kingdom of God is simple, but full of life and blessing, leading to great security. The feasts of one kingdom lead to the despair and demise of a man named Haman. The feast we look toward is the antidote to the twin temptations of assimilation and despair because of the future hope promised as we celebrate at its table, the table that we shared earlier today. When our hearts are comforted by the certain knowledge of God's love for us in the gospel, we are insulated from the temptation of despair and free from the subtle counterfeit and false joy assimilation promises in the kingdom of man. And so this, this book, you have to dig and search and look for what it is that God is saying perhaps. Because it is, as I said, it's subtle and it's hidden. And 
God's hand is hidden in the story. So the antagonist in this story is a man named Haman. The protagonists are Mordecai and Esther. And the middle chapters record the plot by Haman to kill Mordecai and all of the Jews in the empire because Haman, who was an official in the court of the king, hates Mordecai because Mordecai refuses to bow before him and honor him, even as the king had commanded. Mordecai will not bow ever to Haman. Every time he sees him, he refuses to bow to him, and, and Haman hates him for it. And that hatred of Haman carried into his hatred for the Jews, and so he devises a plan to have them all killed and goes to the king and offers to donate 10,000 talents of silver into the king's treasury if the king will have a certain people group, he doesn't even say who they are, a certain people group in his kingdom killed. And of course, Ahasuerus, who has no care for any of his people anyway, says, sure, that's, that's fine, not knowing, of course, that Esther would be one of those people. Another interesting side note of this story is that Haman is a descendant of Agag, who was the Amalekite, the tribal enemy of the Jews in the book of Exodus. When Israel came out of Egypt, the Amalekites attacked the Israelites in the wilderness and God cursed them for attacking the Israelites and he condemned them to extinction in Exodus 17. And then in 1 Samuel 15, in the time of Saul as king, God sends Israel under Saul to carry out the sentence on Amalek and to destroy all of the men all of the women, all of the children, and all of their animals to wipe them out utterly. But Saul does not obey, we know. And he spared the best of the animals, the best of the people, and he even spares King Agag. And for this, Saul was rejected by God. Ironically, Mordecai was a descendant of Saul. And Haman was a descendant of Agag. So now in this, again, we see a, 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 a lesson in, in God's ways that he teaches us that Haman comes into this story now, this, this biblical story, as the fruit, listen, of Saul's disobedience. Generations later, with a desire to annihilate all the Jews of the empire, Paul writes in Galatians 6, he says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Sadly, even into future generations. And that is, in fact, the way that his works over and over again. The sin of the Father is passed on. But this is also a wake-up call for the people of God for us today. Because Haman's enmity against God's people was just one of many, many manifestations of Satan's ongoing warfare against the people of God. So we must live with this constant expectation, and this is not a good, uh, a good thought, but it's reality. We must live life constantly aware of the spiritual battle that is unseen, that continually wages against us. Spiritual ab adversaries that are always waging war against us. But too often we're asleep, lulled into complacency, 
or for a season we relent to one of those twin temptations of either assimilation or despair. I'd have to say that probably one of the greatest temptations of the church today in America is that assimilation. I'm going to tell you too that the book of Esther deals with the gray. You think you can live in gray. You, you might be able to for a while, but I'm telling you eventually God will not allow us to live in the gray. It'll have to either be black or white. But this whole story pivots, and I'm not going to be able to read these. It takes too long. The whole story pivots on a series of events. The first is that Mordecai discovers a plot to have the king assassinated. Two eunuchs, he hears two of, of, of the eunuchs over, over talking about wanting to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai sends a warning through Esther to the king about this plot to have him assassinated. And that's in chapter 2. So when the king hears of this, of course, he hangs these two uh, eunuchs that were planning on assassinating him. But that interestingly, and, and it doesn't say this, but we'll find it later as we get into another part of the book. Normally in a circumstance like that, the king would have, get, would have rewarded Mordecai with, with something great for saving his life. But the king does nothing. Even though the king knew that it was Mordecai who had warned him through Esther, the king either forgets or he ignores it. He just doesn't do anything to acknowledge that Mordecai had saved his life. And then when Mordecai hears, as do all of the Jews, in fact, now the edict has gone into the whole empire from the king that, listen, a month from now, we will kill all of these people. They're living now with this edict by the king that they were all going to die in a very determined time from then. And so it says that the whole city was in an uproar. Can you imagine when you hear that a whole people group are going to be annihilated in, in, a, in a month's time from now, and they're now living under the weight and the fear and the, uh, the, 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 the horror of the facing a certain death from a king that is not going to change his mind, they know. Mordecai goes to Esther and appeals to Esther, and then he utters these famous words in chapter 4. And who knows, he says to Esther, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Can I say this to you and to me today? Here we are living 21st century, six weeks into quarantine, isolation, whatever. What's going to happen? No one knows for sure exactly to the economy, to the world around us. What does this mean long term for us? What does this mean for the church? What does this mean for my family? What does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? Can I say to you and to me that we are living right now under the design purpose of God? You and I were de determined in God's heart to live at this time. And who knows? Who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this to be used by God? And I want to say to you that with this question, Mordecai is asking in arguing, arguing this truth, that there is, listen, a meaningful course of history. That history is not random, that it is not haphazard, but that it has meaning that is determined by God. Only God can give each circumstance and every context of our lives meaning. 
I want you to hear the words of Joseph in Genesis 45. As he confesses what I'm saying, this, this reality, this truth. Genesis 45, I believe we'll put the slide up for you. He says this, And now do not be distressed or angry as he speaks to his brothers. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here as he's in Egypt. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I think Matt said last week, excuse me, Matt said last week or maybe the week before that times like this present such a great opportunity for the gospel. Times like this are, are an opportunity for us to be used by God in ways that we would not, not have been able to have seen. And I want to say to you, God is actively involved in all that's going on right now. If you're going through great time of, of, of frustration, discouragement, if you're dealing with things, maybe just apart from, from this virus, maybe just in your life because of something else relationally, in your marriage, with your children, I want to tell you that God is involved intimately in the affairs of your life. And even though you cannot see his hand, he is at work. In, in chapter 6-1 of, of the book of Esther, there is one sentence that shows the hand of God more clearly than any others. Hang on a minute, my computer's frozen. There is one short sentence. This is amazing. Now, if you get your Bibles, open them up to chapter 6, verse 1. Verse 1. And I want you to underline these. If you underline in your Bible, I want you to underline this. It says this. On that night, the king could not sleep. That verse, that sentence, it's not even a full verse, it's a sentence. That one sentence is the key, pivotal sentence to the whole book of Esther. And it shows the hand of God behind the scenes of Mordecai's life, of Esther's life, and the lives of a whole nation of people living under King Ahasuerus. This is the key moment. On that night, the king could not sleep. A night of sleeplessness leads to the deliverance of God's people. And because he could not sleep, he calls for the annals, the, the chronicles of all of his act, actions. Of his, he, he, here's how he entertains himself. He reads about the things that he's done. And they bring them out, and they, you know, the poor guy has to get up in the middle of the night and bring out the, the annals, and they open them up, and they start, that'll put you to sleep, and they start reading, and he comes across, and he remembers Mordecai, that he had saved his life. And he says, what has been done for this man? And the servant says, well, nothing was done for him. You didn't do anything. And if you know the story, what happens is that he came, Haman walks in at that very moment, early in the morning, with a plan to have 
Now Mordecai hung that very day on a gallow that Haman has built 50 feet high already in preparation to have, in fact, Mordecai killed even that very day before the others are all killed. <laughs> and in the, in the humor of God, in the irony of God, he commands Haman to go in to get Mordecai and to parade him around the city and to clothe him and to adorn him with honor. And it is Haman who then takes Mordecai and leads him around the city and all of the honor is, is bestowed upon Mordecai as Haman has to lead him around. Of course, Esther eventually gets the ear of the king and it's an interesting way that she does it. You need to read it to see it for yourself. And we know the story that she reveals to the king that Haman wanted to have them all killed. And of course, that very day that Mordecai was to hang, Haman hangs on his own gallow. In this book, we see the invisible hand of God changing the course of history. We see the invisible hand of God changing the course of history. Now, we need to know that this intervention by God in his providence doesn't make human action meaningless. It's not as though we're puppets and we have no part in this. Esther is still going to get her chance to stand up. She's going to be able to stand up and finally find courage to admit who she is for God and for the people of God, even at risk of her own life. And God is going to use that, her courageous stand to end Haman's scheming. Esther's faithfulness is important, but listen, but Haman's fate is inevitable as God's sovereign purposes work through his servant. So God's plan proceeds around us, in the world around us. It goes forward in spite of our desires and in spite of our inclinations, whether they be sinful or righteous. God uses all things to shape us. We know this, Romans 8, 28, all things working together for us, we who are called according to God's purposes. He uses all things to shape us and to conform us into the image of his son. So God achieves his perfect will not through our best intentions, not through our most self-sacrificial acts, but in fact, even in spite of sometimes our greatest compromises or our sin. In my life, I can look back and see the hand of God now looking back at times when I had no expectation of God doing something and in spite of me. Decisions I made that were wrong. Decisions I made that I wished I had not made. God used them. God used them, not just for my good, but more importantly for his glory, for his purposes. I want to read a quote to you from one of the commentators that I was reading this week. And there, I think there's a slide for this as well because I want you to read it 
as I read it and let it sink into our hearts. He says this, in the meantime, while we wait for Christ's return, we continually wrestle with our hearts as unmortified idolatries constantly rise up to challenge our peace and joy. And in the meantime, we also wrestle with the empire, exercising all of our subtlety and strength while still recognizing that God is the only one who can bend the empire to do his will. But we do not wrestle alone. God gives his Holy Spirit to begin his work in us, producing his fruit in and through us. And what is more, we do not wrestle forever. One day our wrestling work will be done and we will be done and we will be ushered into God's immediate presence forever. For those who are in Christ, there will be no fear on that day. For Christ himself has opened the door to us and no one and nothing can shut it in our face. What unconquerable joy and peace will be ours then. What unconquerable joy and peace should be ours now. So I say to us today, as I close, that regardless of this season in our lives, regardless of the season in your life right now that you are experiencing, be it good or be it not good, be it joyful or be it not joyful, and regardless of all the, of the circumstances that are out of your control, in spite of what seems to be silence from heaven at times, or a lack of God's activity in our lives, be still and know that he is God. He is at work in an unseen way, both in our lives and in the world bringing about his purposes. Be strengthened and encouraged day by day in the grace of God. He is faithful and working for our good in all things and for his glory. And remember the, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul writes of and says that to the world it's foolishness. But to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. The ways of God, the ways of God are mysterious and beautiful. This God whom we serve is awesome and wonderful. Father, we worship you. We thank you today for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the humility that he displayed when he came to earth on our behalf, that he lived a life that was hidden, that he lived a life that was unseen, that the work of God was unseen for 30 years in his life. And it wasn't until the last three that who he really was became known. Father, many of us live our lives unseen by the masses. We feel and we know that we are to live hidden lives in many ways. That is your will and that is your way. And we submit to that willingly today because we trust you whether we are ever seen by men or not, we do not care as long as we are seen by you. And we thank you today, Father, for the lessons of the book of Esther. We thank you, Lord, that in spite of us, even those of us who might be living nominally, even those of us that might be living in the gray, you will be glorified through us. 
But Lord, we ask today, by the grace that's in Jesus Christ, that you would align our hearts with you so that we would come into the light and live in the light before all men. We thank you, we worship you, and Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.